So let's begin in some silence. Just to be present and be open and be here. So my prayer is that I hope you <clears throat> find that what you're looking for by being here and um, that you may have peace and joy. And of course, in this time, we order the, honor the values of love and truth and peace. And we do so with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. Amen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So, um, God has put me on this earth to accomplish a number of tasks. And so far, I'm so far behind that I will never die. <laughs> and I begin to feel that way about this uh, the way that I've gotten into this teaching about making sacred the already sacred journey. Um, because I thought that I would begin by telling the myth of Parsifal, which is known in a variety of ways. A lot of research has gone into this. And I thought I would tell it very briefly, and then we would get on with other stuff. And by getting on with other stuff, what I meant and mean is getting on to uh, the inner meaning of the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the Jesus narrative itself, those two things. We have these myths, like the Parsifal myth, as archetypical stories that guide us and influence us through life. Usually these operate underneath our awareness at the unconscious level. But they're there. They're there in the shadows, and they function very powerfully. Now, that's last week's class in a sentence. I think it's obvious to people who are to almost any degree free of tribal loyalties that we need a new story in this country. The leading story on the front page of the New York Times today was one, is one that writes about the two things that are different in American culture that we've never had before that are, are leading us into really, really, really dangerous waters as a country. So we need a new story, and the one I want to offer is shaped by the core values that are found in the teachings of Jesus. And those core values, I remind you every week, are love, honesty, and freedom. So since um, I want somewhat to parse the grail story in this time today, and next Sunday will be the last Sunday I intend to teach out of the grail story, let me give a reprise of it. So in the center of time and space, meaning this is an immense story, and you'll find out more about that next week, it's a huge story. 
that has occupied scholars and mythologists for a long time. But in the center of time and space, there lived a king in a castle. He had been mortally wounded. And though his heart still pumped blood, he was virtually dead. He had fallen under an evil spell. He's lost compassion for his people. And so they too go about their lives as if they were in some sort of trance. Because they too had lost a sense of purpose. I hope you begin to see parallels in our time and this story. In a cottage in the woods not far from the castle lives a young man with his mother. The father is gone. One day while he's out in the forest, he encounters a bevy of the king's knights riding along the road. He's awestruck by their appearance and wishes to become as one of them. Uh, Hero worship comes in. Somebody's going to come in and save us. You have good heroes and bad heroes. And eventually, this man whose name is Parsifal, which some scholars think stands for or means the foolish one, begins to make what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey, which is something we are each called upon to make. Though we may turn down the invitation, though we may spurn it, grace is always present and available. And if we do accept the hero's journey, it's never finished. So over the objections of his very strict mother, we'll return to this in a moment, he sets off for the castle. When he reaches the castle, however, he is dumbstruck with disappointment because he finds himself in the middle of a wasteland. The king seems to have been mortally wounded. Those in charge to take care of the king move about listlessly doing nothing about the terrible situation that had befallen them and the king. Parsifal is set out on this journey to become a warrior. Now, warrior energy is not pugilistic fighting energy. I mentioned last week that one of the things that male psychology is useful for is knowing the difference between strength and power. In our culture, we value strength, particularly the strength of redemptive violence, and not power. Those of you who have children know that a two-month-old baby can be very powerful at 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Not strong, but powerful. So the warrior energy is used to help the king, and the king energy is about purpose, about why are you here, finding meaning. So Parsifal desperately wants to help his king, but he has no idea how to do so. His mind and heart are filled with questions, but his mother had trained him not to embarrass people by asking questions. So he leaves the castle in search for what he thinks will heal the king, which is the grail, eventually known as the Holy Grail in the story, the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, mythologically, that's what it is. In actuality, in the story, the grail is you, but okay, we'll get to that. So he travels down lots of blind paths and false trails, but one day he finally glimpses the, the grail, and is a, in doing so, he senses the king's pain and needs to return to the castle to talk to the king. Uh, by, by the time he gets there, the king is at death's door, but with compassion in his heart, he kneels beside his monarch, and a question rises to his lips, what ails thee? Where do you hurt? 
There's a blinding flash and the spell is broken. The king's health is restored in all the land and its inhabitants are well. Meaning that when we are centered, everything else in our life is okay. Even though we're protected from nothing, I mean, we all are going to end up dead, right? <laughs> Even though we're protected from nothing, we're sustained in the whole process. So uh, that's one version of the story told very, very briefly. You want to know more about the story, you can pursue it on your own in this very readable uh, book by Robert. This is the first book that Robert Johnson wrote. Um, and some say that it is best. All of Robert Johnson's books are very brief, meaning you can read them in a sitting or two, um, but it will take a long time to digest the stuff that, that Robert says. Now, the Grail story is like a dream, and when we have a dream at night, the dream is a representation of all that we are. The place where the dream occurs is significant. Every character in the dream is some aspect of us. And usually it is the internalization of our personal history. Dreams involving non-human characters, especially dogs, cats, fish, and birds, are um, also aspects of us, and they're very, very important. Um, cats are not in the Bible. Dogs, fish, and birds are, but if you look on her Egyptian hieroglyphics and other ancient writings, you'll see all these animal symbols in the hieroglyphics. They're very old and part of what Campbell and Jung would call the collective unconscious. So there are people who are afraid of snakes who've never seen one, people who dream of snakes who've never seen one, that, that kind of thing. And, and, and a dream usually says what's going on with us or what needs to be going on with us, and we work that out in conversation with someone who's close to us. Now, if you don't have a rich dream life, you can be grateful that what Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung referred to as the collective unconscious is available to us through myths like Parsifal and the Holy Grail because it's our story. We're graced that there are so many of these ancient stories to draw on. Now, I know that I mention a lot of books in my teaching, and I'd say a couple words about that. Um, I am not quoting from these works, though they have informed me. If I do quote, <clears throat> the academic word is plagiarize, from these works, I'll let you know. Um, but I think referring to the scholarship, not mine, but other people's that lie behind these talks, let you know that I'm not making this stuff up. All right? It's this is this is where academic work is in spiritual and religious work, and it's it's out there. It's available, but sadly, it's not usually made available through organized religion. So uh, another reason for mentioning books is if there's something that causes you to sit up and take notice and you want to learn more about it, you can go to one of these books and find out because it's there. They're all on the website. Um, and all these talks are in written and audio form. They're in the archives. So if you go to the website and look under archives, you can find all the past talks and you can read them or listen to them or whatever. 
So that being said, I want to mention another book. It also is by Robert. It's called Lying with the Heavenly Woman. And if you are a man and you are interested in knowing more about integrating the feminine into your life, this is the book to read. Now, <clears throat> Robert defined integration like this. The word integer means one or whole. And he says that, it's the way that I remember him defining integration. If you go into a kitchen and you have a big box, and in that one box are all the kitchen things, there's milk and sugar and skillets and aprons and butter and spices and pans, you would have all the kitchen things, but they would not be useful because they would be muddled. Now, we're muddled as a culture because we're muddled as people. And we need to be integrated. So becoming unmuddled is separating things out and putting them in their proper place so that they can be useful. Milk goes in the refrigerator, not in the kitchen cabinet. Flour goes in a canister, not in a drawer. And when you get things out in their proper place, then they're useful. That's Robert's way <clears throat> of describing what integration is. So if you're a man, this book will be useful to you in integrating the feminine. If you are a woman who has a relationship with a man, this is a very helpful, insightful book. If you are a person <clears throat> who had a mother, <laughs> so Parsifal had a mother, and for good reason, she wanted to keep her son safe. She had a husband and two other sons who had been knights, and all of them had been killed pursuing the knightly profession. So clearly, she wanted to protect her only surviving child. So she makes a one-piece <clears throat> homespun garment. Now, where have you heard of a seamless garment before? It's in the Christ story. It's in the crucifixion story. It's in this story. You will also find out that Parsifal, we'll talk more about this next week, but Parsifal comes from Wales, which at the time was a nowhere place. Can any good come out of Nazareth? That kind of story. Parsifal didn't have a daddy. Get the parallels here. So <clears throat> Parsifal's mother wraps him up in this one-piece garment, this is the mother complex in symbolic form. Every man goes out with his mother complex wrapped around him, which will defeat him as long as he wears it in relationship to the world. Now, I want to be clear that the mother complex has nothing to do with the actual mother. And it's very different from the mother archetype, which we'll talk about next week. But if the son wears this adaptation as his outer garment through life, he will be defeated. Because he's taken refuge in the mother complex, and that will alienate him from his manhood. 
and no amount of bravado, no amount of accomplishment can make a man out of a youth who is still clothed in the mother complex. I heard Robert one time in a lecture bemoan the fact that one of the things that little boys want to do when they grow up is be a cowboy. Right? And he said that's such a sad image for a child, for a male child. Cow is a feminine image, and boy is an eternal youth. See, if you're a cowboy, you never grow up. What is one of our best football teams in the country called? The Dallas Cowboys. So, and we like to get involved in all that youthful stuff. I love it. A man can enter the Grail Castle too soon and not find his purpose. So in our culture, many men do that. They don't put aside the mother complex. They enter the Grail Castle too soon, and they spend their lives in what we call self-feeding behaviors. Those are addictions, addiction to work, to uh, alcohol, to drugs, to sex. Um, uh, they get absolutely snared by pornography, which is a huge issue in this culture. It's just one we don't talk about. Um, it's worthy of a conversation for another time. It's certainly worthy of our attention. Just to be aware, it's the biggest money-making thing on the Internet. All right. So before we enter the dark woods at a place of our own choosing, I want to take another look at Parsifal and his mother. So he, I spoke last week about he's been without a father. I spoke about the father wound. Most every man I've ever met, including your teacher, has a father wound. My own father was as good a man as could be, but he was affected and afflicted by his own culture and family of origin issues, as we all are. And it is a huge psychological step forward to be able to have an empathetic and compassionate look at your own parents and just to see them as people. Um, when I work with people in counseling and they will tell me about their parents, I'll sometimes say, well, what was your father's first name? Bob. Well, why don't you call him Bob? Oh, I don't know. He would be horrified at that. But he's just a person who happens to be your father. And the more you can humanize him before he dies, the better off you will be. Um, my father wounded me in much the way that he was wounded. Not that he ever woke up a day in his life with the intention of wounding his sons, but we do. Most parents do. I have two adult children. I love them dearly. I have hurt them significantly, not intentionally or willfully. It was just the way of the world. I parented the way I was parented. When my first child was born, I was deep into graduate school as a student. I was trying to get tenure as a professor, and I was pastor of a church. When my first child was born, uh, I went and bought a book, which was considered the Bible on child rearing at the time by Benjamin Spock. Some of you may remember Baby in Child Care. I read that book. I understood Greek better. 
There is no manual for how to be a parent. There is no manual for how to be a person. I bought a new electric toothbrush earlier this year. It came with a 30-page manual in three different languages. I think there are reasons that people make better grandparents than parents because we've had a dry run at being a parent. And now we know, and we don't have to put up with them at night. So though I won't go into this, you know, because you're sitting there with your own personal history, most parents do the best they can with the energy that they have and awareness they have. Some children in this world are born into situations where because of war or famine or natural disaster, they are robbed of a secure, nurturing environment. This past 4th of July in Highland Park, Chicago, a 22-year-old male gunman committed a mass shooting, and two of the people who were killed were the mother and father of a four-year-old boy they had taken to that parade today. Suddenly, he was without parents. Now, in my um, psychological training, I had uh, teachers who stressed the importance of trying to find out, getting to know someone who you were seeing for evaluation or counseling, all you could about what he called the three Bs. And the first of these Bs is bonding. What kind of physical or emotional bonding did a child experience growing up, especially in the first six years or so? Was it predictable? Was it nurturing? Was it uncertain? Was it painful? Was it precarious? Because these early life experiences affect a child's ability to trust. Okay? And all sorts of factors can influence this. Mother can give birth and then immediately get pregnant with another child. Uh, mother can die in childbirth. Mother can be an alcoholic. Daddy cannot be present. All sorts of things can, can affect that. Years ago, there was an experiment conducted by the University of Miami Hospital. You know this experiment? Um, in which in the neonatal unit, every other baby who was placed in that unit was put on a different protocol than the other babies. Now, all the babies got excellent treatment. But every other child who was born had every hour a nurse or a nurse practitioner reached through the incubator or into the crib and stroked the baby for five minutes, every hour, 24 hours a day, during the time that they were there. The children who got that stroking, by all the markers that they used to mark the health and well-being of infants, weight gain, breathing, heart rate, all that stuff, these babies did better than the other babies. And the person who was running the experiment said that these children responded posi positively to tactile stimulation. Horse feathers. <laughs> they responded to being loved, to being touched, to being stroked. The second B that we were trained to look for is behaviors, because a child internalizes behaviors, especially unexpected traumatic ones, as statements about the self. That is, if a parent is depressed, angry, anxious, that will be interpreted as a statement about the child. Years ago, I attended a men's program. I'm just using this one as one illustration. I could write a book, and you got your own story. 
But years ago, I was attending a ROAR conference, an all-male conference, and I, I heard many, many stories. But the one that took a cake was told by a man who said that when he was seven or eight, his parents got into a fight in their home. He was in his bedroom. He stuck his head out the bedroom door and looked down the hall in time to see his father shoot and kill his mother and then turn the gun on himself. And for years, he lived with the terrifying notion, as irrational as it may sound, that he was responsible for that. And it also made him very frightened about making connections with other important people because they go away. The third B is about beliefs. We all grow up with the belief that our way, the way our family does things is normal, the way things ought to be done. It's clear, Baptist is better than others. <laughs> Which got complicated because we were also taught not to judge. I remember how jarring it was for me the first time I ran into a family that opened their presents on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and I thought, what, are you crazy? <laughs> so these three things, bonding, behaviors, beliefs, they're the garment that we wear when we leave. Now, some people get a thousand miles from their place of birth and they never leave home. Some folks leave home and then try, usually unconsciously, to recreate the same thing somewhere else. So pay attention to how you use that word home. Where is it for you? By the way, trying to do the exact opposite of something one of your parents did is also being very tied to them. So if a man tells me because he grew up with an abusive father, I made a vow that I would never be like my dad, what that means, he's got an image of his dad in his head to know what not to be like. So he's not really living a freely chosen behavioral life at that point. So when I took up this new theme, making sacred the already sacred journey, I thought, well, I'll tell the Parsifal story as a way of kind of introducing it and then get on with it. And as I said, by getting on with it, I mean getting into the, the Christ story, the Christian story, the teachings of Jesus, the inner meaning of the, the, the Christ myth. Um, but this Parsifal story has been so rich and so uh, provocative. So in the time remaining today, I want to try to deal with some things that came out of last week's time in terms of questions that I got, comments that I got, and it will involve three things. The role of questions in shaping the quest, uh, the matter of non-dualism, and the question or role of dogma. That's why I decided to call today questions, non-duality, and dogma. <clears throat> so the first thing that I want to say is that your journey to the grail castle and finding the grail is not mine. My journey is not yours. Your journey is not mine. So each of us leaves these gatherings with a different agenda. And I share my journey not because it's the way to go, because it's just my experience. And the metaphor I like to use is that I'm showing you a photo album of my family, my journey to this point. And I'm talking about some of my hopes and some of the wounds and some of the highlights 
And this may remind you of places that you've been and forgotten about. It may remind you of places that you would like to go. It may stimu stimulate you in, in other ways. But my hope is that all of us here will be pulled out of our comfort zones. Jesus was not about making people feel good. I do want you to feel good. I mean, I want you to be glad you came here and be comforted and all that sort of stuff. I'm just saying that Jesus wasn't into that. He had another agenda. And he didn't provide answers. He certainly didn't teach theology. Um, Jesus never once said, according to what we have, look, here's something you have to believe. He never said that. He did say, look, here's a way you can live. And then he had a ton of questions that he asked. So in thinking about those three B's I've mentioned, you might do some reflecting, some journaling, some meditating, some talking over with a close, dear friend. And as I said, these will be on the website on Tuesday. But where has life been unfair to you? And how has that unfairness affected you? Where have you been especially blessed in life, and what have you done with that blessing? And here's one that doesn't apply to anybody in this room, but I do feel obligated to mention it, and that is, where are you rigid? Where are you resistant to change? What fears do you have, like Parsifal, that block you from being in the world in the most loving, honestly, free way possible? My first spiritual teacher, George, said that if you could get everybody in the world together in one room and give them all sodium pentothal and get them to tell the truth, everybody would say what the, the one thing that's true about them is that we're all afraid of something. Where were your parents stuck in life? You know, the relationship we have with our parents and siblings are the most powerful relationships we ever have, so it makes sense to pay attention to them. One of the things Carl Jung said was that we all walk in shoes that are too small for us. So where do you need to grow up? Where are you stuck? What new life wants to emerge in the world through you? And where are you hurting? I think one of the reasons, not the only one to be sure, but one of the reasons we need to be kind to each other is every person in this room is carrying a heavy burden about something. A fear, a problem, a concern, some combination of all that. Now, we can resist these things. We can say, this, none of those apply to me. But in doing so, that will lead to an inevitable disaster of one kind or another. Either living above the ground when you're not dead, but you're living a dead life, or not being in touch with the true self, 
And, and the worst good news I have for you is that there is no way at some level to avoid the dark wood. And let's just say one of the models, um, the one that Ken Wilber uses has nine developmental models. You cannot get in an airplane at developmental stage one and fly to developmental stage nine. You've got to go through each one as it comes along. And each one is a dark night entering the woods, travail, hard work. It's the way of the journey. Now, I see that as good news because we never finish. There's always more. There's more to do, more to look forward to, more to learn, and that sort of thing. So the issue of questions. Another thing I, I want to spend some time on very briefly because it will come up again and again is the matter of dualism and, and non-dual mind. Um, I, I want to say this as clearly as possible. Non-duality cannot be communicated in words. So the words I'm now about to say merely point to the realm of non-duality. They don't contain it. In fact, there is no realm of non-duality to point to. So all truths are paradoxical, all essential truths. For example, we are on a journey to where we already are. Or as St. Uh, Teresa of Avila said, you cannot enter a room you are already in. Though there is no place to get to and we are already where we need to be, we can't stop moving because we're not there yet. Let me say that again? Nah, you got to. So to put it another way, the journey is our home. Home's not back there, out there, where we are, this place is, is our home. This is one of the great, great, great teachings of Jesus by word and deed. I've, got, I've not got a place to lay my head. Home is where my family is you, he said when he was asked. And the line that I got from our Progoff, a union analyst I was lucky enough to meet and do some work with, I just love this. Um, in order to know yourself, you must be known by another. And in order to be known by another, you must know yourself. So becoming aware and being present is difficult because most of the time we're elsewhere, we're not paying attention. We can fall into simplified thinking. We can be or make, uh, we can be the recipients of false assumptions. We can embrace unprovable ideas as facts. I mean, the list of ways not to be present uh, with factuality and truth is long. Perhaps the biggest block to presence and awareness is what spiritual matters refer to as non-dualistic thinking, or I refer to as dualistic thinking. Because the nature of dualism is to separate. This is the big commodity in our culture. Divisiveness. Picking sides. Non-dualism is to look for connections. 
So the Jesus narrative transmits teachings that are non-dualistic. For example, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the those referred to as the, the scribes and the Pharisees, that's code word, they were very into the law. Law is very dualistic. Things are right, wrong, good or bad. People were in or out by virtue of how they obeyed the law. And Jesus comes along and he says, eh, I don't think so. Uh, that's important, but I want to add to it. I want to fulfill that with the law of, come on, have we been together so long? And the law of love, I want to fill it up with the law of love and the law of justice. And the scribes and Pharisees said, hot dog, we never thought of that. Thank you, let's do that. No. They condemned him as being a heretic. Dualism is very seductive because it provides simplistic answers. But these answers come at the expense of greater wisdom and truth, and over time they increase tribalism and intolerance, which is precisely the most vocal aspects of our culture today, both right and left. So powerful people, right and left, use dualistic sound bites to keep their adherents separate, to keep them angry, to keep them energized, keep people fired up by uh, diet of one-sided arguments and examples. Now, I think that as followers of Jesus, we've got something to add to this. We have wisdom. We have curiosity. We have love. And, and we have connection. I was also going to put in there being a smart ass, but I don't know that that fits everybody. So, But you don't have to be in a, in a coma to be unconscious. Degrees of unconsciousness run the gamut from being lost in thought to embracingly, embracing dangerously unconscious ideologies like racism and homophobia. So I want to repeat what I said in here last week. As followers of Jesus... We become more conscious when we let go of the chatter in our heads, are more open to new ideas, take off our ego mask, and are open to the love, truth, and freedom that are already buried in our hearts. We don't have to go get this stuff. It's already there. Now, uh, 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 one of the reasons I am convinced that some people, none of you, don't pursue having a daily spiritual practice is because we don't like to run into how dualistic we are. But if you sit in meditation that hopefully leads to contemplation, it's humiliating because you'll experience in the first 30 seconds what a failure you are at this and how dualistic you are. How not present, how judgmental, we all are. Through dualism, the mind separates, it contrasts, it compares. Through non dualism, the mind examines, 
the bigger picture. It looks for connections and synergies. Fundamentalists tend to be dualistic. Progressives tend to be non-dualistic. So progressives view fundamentalists as rigid and inflexible, and fundamentalists view progressives as wishy-washy or standing for nothing. Both of those evaluations are dualistic. Now, dualism is helpful. It's really helpful to know the difference between a bed and a bathtub. It's good to know that this building that we're sitting in right now is the result of all types of skills put together by dualistic thinkers. But the teaching that wants to happen in the space is non-dual. So here's some examples of non-dual. You versus me in contrast with you and me. So just experiment with noticing how much the word but shows up in your vocabulary. This or that compared with this and that. One thing compared with another, one thing is part of another. My mother, high school senior youngest teacher, had a um, pet peeve about people using the word compare incorrectly. People say something is compared to something else, and she said, oh, you can't say that. Has to, she was so rigid. Uh, <laughs> it has to be compared with something. It's a compare, com means with. Male or female, male and female. People are threats to each other. People depend to each, on each other. And we're going to return to non-dualism many times along this journey because it is the biggest block to presence and consciousness. And the other big contributor to uh, blocking us is um, religious doctrine. So the one thing I want to end with today is trying to articulate that the journey we're making sacred, the already sacred, is not a religious journey. I am not anti-religion, except when religion claims certainty. Certainty is disrespectful of mystery. So Jesus did not teach theology. Jesus did not teach doctrine. Jesus would have no part in the current rancor that is going on in the Methodist Church today, uh, that those who are most vocal about their divisive opinions assure any who will listen that what they're doing is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They aren't. And though the leaders of the homophobic group call their official publication the Good News Newsletter, there is no good news in that proclamation. There is religious political bantering, there's bragging, there's outright dishonesty, there's very little of Jesus in it. Now, I have spent most of my professional life in the religious sector part of it, getting to know better uh, what 
our best scholars have been teaching about Jesus and his teaching. And I have, during these years, come more and more to believe that Jesus is a model and guide for how I myself want to live. That's what I am teaching. I believe his teachings are certainly the way to live that he referred to as the abundant life. But I am also aware that both Jesus and his message have been buried in concepts and dogmas and rituals that ironically have been created to communicate both him and his message. You talk about a paradox. That's one. And what my years of study have led me to see is that much of what I've been taught to be Christianity was actually a cocktail of Western individualism, consumerism, and white supremacy. So when I say that the journey into wholeness, the effort to make sacred, the already sacred journey is one without dogma and doctrine, this is what I mean. Jesus, I said, as I said, never himself taught a word of what we call theology. Theology is something we did to Jesus. Um, he never said believe. So. Here's your moment of zen. Stealing from John Stewart. After many years of labor, an inventor discovered the art of making fire. And he took his tools to the snow-clad northern regions and initiated a tribe into the art of fire-making, the advantages of fire-making. And people became so absorbed in this novelty that it didn't occur to them to thank the inventor who just one day quietly slipped away. Because he was one of those rare human beings endowed with greatness, he didn't have any desire to be remembered or revered. All he sought was the satisfaction of knowing that someone had benefited from his discovery. So the next tribe he went to was just as eager to learn as the first, but the local priest became very je jealous of the stranger's hold on the people. So they had him assassinated. To ally any suspicion of the crime they created, they, they had a portrait of this great inventor painted and put that on the main altar of the temple. And then they divined, designed a liturgy so that his name would be revered and his memory would be kept alive. And the greatest care was taken that not a single rubric of the liturgy was ever altered or omitted. And they took the tools that he used for making fire and they enshrined them in a golden case with glass that they put on the altar and any who laid their hands on it with faith were said to be healed. The high priest himself undertook the task of compiling a life of the inventor. And this became the holy book in which the inventor's loving kindness was offered as an example for people to emulate. His glorious deeds were eulogized, his superhuman nature made an article of faith. And the priest made sure that a copy of this book was handed down to future generations while they authoritatively interpreted the meaning of the words and the significance of the inventor's life and death. And if anybody varied from that, 
They were punished with death or excommunication because they deviated from the church's doctrine. Caught up as they were in these religious tasks, the people completely forgot the art of making fire. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>